The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Go ahead and take your Bibles, if you would, and open them with me the book of John. We're going to be just a little bit farther along than we were in the last hour. In the last hour, we were in John chapter 2, kind of examining the account to the miracle of Jesus changing water to wine in order to remind ourselves that God is always a God of more, and that includes times that can be disappointing. And as I said in the last hour, this has been a disappointing year, but I'm looking forward to a brand new opportunity and a brand new challenge to come ahead. I'm especially looking forward to the times when we as Christians, not just myself, but all of you I know, are going to be willing to get back out in the fields if we hadn't been there and start working to culminate, to cultivate, and potentially to have some of this harvest coming in. That I know people need Jesus. They always have. And this time has done nothing more than to enhance that, if anything. And so we just need to be willing ourselves to go out and Again, to be evangelistic and to encourage them in every way that we can, hopefully, and to gain them for the cause of Christ. Because we want to be in heaven, and I want that to be a crowded place. Uh, I get what Jesus said about few there be that find it, but let's get the biggest few we can find. How about that? That's usually my uh, idea on it. But John chapter 5, we're going to talk in this hour just a little bit differently, but continuing on that theme of God is the God of more into this, this hour at least, or however long it turns to be, we're talking about how God is a God of more in spite of our disability. I don't know if you have ever lived a life like I have lived in the past, and I did this for a number of years, really at least from 2010 to 2013, I was what you would absolutely call as disabled. I was in stage four heart failure, I was in need of a heart transplant, and uh, many of you recall and remember and supported me tremendously during that and prayed fervently. And I appreciate it just to bring that up again. But uh, it was a difficult time. It was a time when at the point in my life then I had two children of the five I have now, but two children and uh, sleeping 16, 18 hours a day, you know, getting up in the morning and taking a shower and having to collapse for a two-hour nap on a Sunday like this before going to worship and being able to preach, and if I could get through 15 or 20 minutes, being thrilled with that. Uh, toting, as I mentioned, I was in this area at least in 2012, wearing an IV bag and a fanny pack full time. I was disabled. I struggled. Something as simple as brushing my teeth or eating a meal could wipe me out for the rest of the day. And I, I know what that specifically type of thing feels like, but many people have other types of disabilities. And of course, that this to take away their potential abilities. And there are more flowery ways and obviously more positive ways to look at that. But the truth of it is, is that no matter if we feel as if we have any physical disability or maybe emotional disability, as many suffer with, or in the case of this past year, certainly for some, a financial disability, you and I, to an extent, all... That's all, and you cannot get any aller than all. Carry with us a spiritual disability within ourselves. Now, is Jesus an advantage? Absolutely. Is the God, the God of more, as I'm trying to describe Him, that He can Himself, through His power and our acceptance of such, is it possible to get it past our spiritual disability? Yes. And in many cases, and in all cases, really, more possible or potential than getting past that physical disability or that emotional or that financial or that whatever old disability we may deal with. Spiritually speaking, to an extent, we are all disabled. Now, the way Jesus is going to teach us that is the same way he taught it in the first century, the same way he teaches it in our account, and that is like he often would by using the most physical ideas or encounters he can have. To only do nothing, in this case, to provide a miracle to teach someone about their spiritual well-being and to show someone the potential that he had if they would only grasp at it to reach forth and to have their spiritual disability lifted 
to stand in eternity. So I want you to just know that as we begin the reading here, John chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 9, and I didn't say this this morning, but if you remember anything about my preaching, there's one advantage to it for you, you don't flip, you don't flop. So if you can find John chapter 5, you are there and you don't have to get frustrated. As I know I've been in the past and say, well, I couldn't get to the verse quick enough. He's already moved on. And you don't have to do that with me. We're studying the text. So here it is. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And after there was a feast of the Jews, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now this is a side note, but if you're going to read the gospel of John, every time you shift gears and change chapters predominantly, if at the beginning of one of those chapters or section headings you see something associated with a feast, particularly with Passover, that's the way we date the book of John. That's the way we determine that Jesus had a three-year ministry inside of his 30-some-odd three-year life. That's the way we determine that time has shifted because those Jews celebrated certain of those feasts that are named here annually. So you can say, okay, I saw one here, that's one year. I saw one here, that's yet another. And then I saw one here, that must be the last of it. And as a matter of fact, from John chapter 12-ish and forward, you're only inside of about a first, the last week or so of Jesus' life. But nonetheless, just a side note. It was after that feast, or at the time of that feast, verse 2, and now there was at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which was called in Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. Now, I have immediately determined sometimes that Bethesda might mean five porches. I don't think it's related. I think he's just giving more detail. John often did that, more detail to prove the case, and so people could say, yeah, I know that part. The word Bethesda means something to the sort, and it's just uh, coincidental or maybe providential that it does. The word Bethesda here means something to the sort of the house of grace or the house of mercy or the house of comfort. And you'll see why that may attain itself to this. Verse 3, And in these days lie a great multitude of withered, uh, a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, of halt, of withered, waiting for the moving of the water. And then verse 4, you may or may not, depending on what translation you're examining this morning, you may or may or may not even see verse 4, but King James translation leaves it in. I'll explain some of that. It says, For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water, so stirred it, mixed it, whatever, troubled the water, and whosoever then was first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now, your translation may have that verse, verse 4. It may not have that verse. It may have a marginal note. It may have that verse in a different uh, type of font. Maybe it's a little grayed out. I don't know how it deals with it. Just to seal that off to begin with, basically there has been some argument and some confusion through the years of ultimate more and more modern translations coming out as to whether or not verse 4 was actually truth and if it should actually be there. And some had argued, well, you look at this and you see what is spoken of in verse 4. They claim that an angel would come down at a certain season and get in this pool and stir the water up and if someone stepped in that was healed. They say, you know what, that's not the way God worked. That's not the way God operates. And so that didn't happen. I'll show you my opinion on that. Probably didn't happen. But it was perceived to happen. There were a multitude of people who in that day honestly, sincerely, apparently believed that if and when the waters troubled and if and when they got in first, they would be healed. Now the closest thing to that that I can imagine, and it's not nearly uh, as similar as I wish it was for illustration, but it would be something similar to the pools you find at uh, uh, RFD's house in uh, Warm Springs, Georgia. It was said of him, of course, him uh, being diseased and him having issues and, and maladies and such, it was said of him that he could come down and get in these pools that were fed by these hot springs. And I've actually stood in those pools without water, you know, taking a little tour. But that he could get in there and he could, for whatever reason, through the therapeutic of it, through the minerals in the water they don't know, through the warmth of it, could somehow get in that pool, be rolled in a wheelchair, and then turn around and walk out with some assistance 
and, and actually keep his mobility for a period of time. So I don't know what, if anything, was coming out of this. I don't believe, my disclaimer, my judgment, I don't believe that actually in reality God was sending an angel down at a period of time and then they were being healed. But I know this, they thought he would. That is where their trust lied. That is where their faith was set. That is what the people thought. And so some suggest that possibly verse 4 is actually something that was not in the original, that was added by a translator just for clarification, where he was reading, or as he was a scribe sitting side by side, writing this along, he, read, or he wrote down to, And there lay a great multitude of impotent folk, blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. And then he saw, nobody's going to know what that moving of the water is, so let me explain what they believed. Whether that's truth or not. Your translation may have it or not. Maybe I shouldn't have said anything about it or not. But just in case it's missing. A clarification statement based on what they thought. Verse 5 though. A certain man. Now anytime you're reading the New Testament, I would encourage you, if you read the term a certain man, literally here what the word certain means, it's not as much that guy right there and no other like him as it is the average Joe. You see sometimes where it reports of Jesus and he's constantly being attacked by the scribes and the Pharisees and others. And on one occasion, I can recall at least, it says, and a certain lawyer. No, that was the average lawyer in the day. That's the way they treated those who they felt above and who they saw as beneath them. That's the way particularly they treated our Lord. And so they come questioning. But here we have what the Bible describes as a certain man who was there, which had an infirmity. Now this is real confirmation to what's about to happen. That had an infirmity of 38 years. Now whether that was uh, an infirmity from birth, if he was 38 years old, maybe so. But if he's 48 years old, ain't got it. Don't know. But it's plenty long enough to establish, and you'll see this not here, but man, Jesus takes a waylaying from the people later on in this text over this issue and whether or not they even thought the man was sick, and if he did so, when he did it, and all that was brought up. But he'd been there 38 years, verse 6, And when Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he had been there a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? And the impotent man, verse 7, answered him, Sir, I have no man where the water is troubled to put me in the pool. But while I'm a coming, another steppeth down before me. And Jesus said unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. Verse 9, And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And the same on the Sabbath, was on the Sabbath day. So Jesus again, he's going to take some, some accusation and some abuse and all the latter part of the chapter, which honestly I wish we could just study through verse 47, but I won't. But there's more to it. But I want to draw you some principles out of this, just in the nine verses we read that we can help to apply to remind myself that God is the God of more because here he used God in the body, his son, to prove that he was more than our disabilities. And even though on appearance side he heals this man of a physical disability he in a roundabout way announces to him that I'm hoping that we are healing him from the spiritual disability so we'll get to that number one I want you to see the first part of it, it comes back up in the first verse or two uh, really the the right after that descriptive verse look at verse five again let's reread that and a certain man was there he'd been there with the infirmity 38 years and Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been there a long time in that case and saith unto him, question here, Wilt thou be made whole? What does Jesus want this man to do? In my mindset, and my mindset is not your mindset, so don't quote me from your notes, because it ain't my notes. But in a sense, in my view of this at least, Jesus wants this man to do something that I think is so important in walking the spiritual Christian life as we live it today. And that is to first off, admit your weakness. Now Jesus is no, 
Jesus is no dummy. Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda in order that, or because it seems, one by one, he knew who was there. He knew the audience. He knows that as tradition has it, when they are of the inkling that this troubling of the water, that they assume what happened was going to be present, that there were throngs of people that gathered around this pool. And folks, this wasn't a pool in the backyard, you know, 12 foot across with a blow-up ring. This was a, this was a massive, massive communal pool. And so all these multitudes, which it described as that, are there. And everybody that's there is sick. And everybody that's there is hurting. And everybody that's there has some type of disability. And every one of them are struggling. Every one of them had the same goal in mind. The man proves it by the fact that, you know, I could get there, but I, I can't get there. So they want to be healed by what they think is their opportunity, their possibility, and their potential for such. But Jesus comes up, I don't know how, and selects what is called here a certain man, which really, again, means typical man. Yes, he picked one. I'm not denying that. He was singular in this. But in this, he didn't go around and say, now who in here, you know, like the Benny Hens of the world, or you name the others, who in here walked in that I can claim I healed them? That they were lame, but they, you know, we got to get... Who in here, you know, say they have cancer, but nobody can prove they do or not? It's not what he did. Jesus somehow, through all of these people, all with similar maladies, you read the list of the maladies up there, all those people had something very visual, very exterior to be able to see. And Jesus comes in and selects a man. And he approaches that man. And first of all, he wants that man to start the learning process. And notice what he does. You're in chapter 5. You're looking at, hopefully with me, verse 5 and 6. I have to turn one page right here just to get to it. We're staying in chapter 5, so you can call this a flip if you need to. I'm not trying to flop, though. But look at verse number 14. Again, much similar to verse 4, which is kind of a... Here's an explanation of what they thought may or may not have been the case, may or may not have been possible, may, certainly probably was not miraculous, but yet just happenstance. Verse 14 of chapter 5, And afterward Jesus finding him. Now again, this man's jumped up and run off. He's being interviewed and interrogated over who did this, why he did it and all. But Jesus goes back, finds the man, and afterward Jesus findeth him in the temple and saith unto him, Behold! Thou art made whole. Yep. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. Or I want to translate that better, lest a worser thing comes on thee. Because what they thought, again, it's thought in that day. What they supposed is that if a man was disabled, if a man was sick, if a man was in pain, it had to be because he was in sin. Had to be. And again, I mentioned this book in passing in the last hour. Think about Job. What were the accusations of his friends a time and time and time again? And even Job, probably in the back of his mind, even though he confesses God is what he, I don't know, but what he didn't for, for a flash say, so, yeah, we just, just, it's always good to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. But they, they come to Job and say, Job, what have you done? I mean, you've lost your family, you've lost your, your fields, you've lost uh, the fences, and, and you've lost everything. What in the world did you do, Job? Just, just, just own up to it, just admit it. You know that's the only path to this. What did you do? They thought that. That wasn't uncommon for Job. It was an assumption that was regularly known. That is that if one is sick, if one is, we'll use the ones in the text, uh, impotent, blind, all, withered, then those people were in that condition because of sin. Verse 14 states such. Is that the case? Not to that extent. Not to that way of full 
thinking, as I would say sometimes, taking it, straining it through a strainer, dropping it through a funnel, and putting it on the point. Not that. However, something that could cloud their determination in such are facts, and that is that there are times in life when people are sick as a result of something they've done which was sin. Now, if I walk in here this morning and say, man, I got a headache, and you say, you sinner, my stomach ain't bitten. Woo, I don't know what you did. Yeah, I ain't Mexican. That's what I did. But, I mean, it ain't. It, but there are times. You take a person who makes a choice to, to, to drink alcohol and, and wine, and he gets intoxicated and drunk, and he gets out on the highway, and he runs 70 miles an hour off the road into a tree. And for the rest of his life, he can't move anything beneath his chin? How'd he get that way? Participation in sin. Does that keep him that way? No. What keeps him that way is those injuries are hard to overcome. You take someone who gets involved in an adulterous relationship sometimes. As unfortunate it is, sometimes occurs, and you know, inside of these four walls and others, the church houses all around, he may have to walk in one night and tell his wife the truth because now he's got some kind of disease, something that's going to debilitate him and endanger her. Sometimes things are consequence of sin, but not necessarily direct results of such. So maybe that clouded your thinking. But the point here that I'm looking at is the first thing Jesus wanted this man to do. He asked him, wilt thou be made whole? He wants this man to think. And he wants this man to say, yes, I do want to be made whole. But see, Jesus is so sneaky. He's not sneaky like that, but he's sneaky. Because he cares more about that man being made whole spiritually than he ever did about him being made whole in his legs or in his body. So to subhead this, if you want to subhead it for, for memory's sake, in admitting his weakness, the first thing he needed him to do was to realize the primary source of his illness. The primary source of such. And for him... It is logical at least. Again, my disclaimer, my determination. Couldn't prove it, not try it. But at least logical because that's brought up in verse 14 that he is, his 38-year malady could be the result of something that he got involved in. Something that he participated in. Primary source. And when we think about spiritual disabilities, put aside physicals that we sometimes battle and deal with, the primary source of that always comes down to sin. If I'm spiritually weakened, if I'm spiritually disabled, if I'm spiritually uh, not up to God's standards, the only dividing line between me and God is always going to be that of sin. It's not just space. It's not just time. It's that of sin. That's the division there that lies. So notice that part of it, first of all, what I'm going to call the paralyzing source. But also notice this, what about that paralyzing course? What, what did Jesus actually tell him there over in this text, verse 5 and 6, and then over in after he asked that question, verse 14, he said, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come on you. You thought that 38 years was bad. You go out and you do something that puts you in a position where, not again, not the cause, but the consequence is that you end up with something worser than this. Just know that the course of sin is always down. That's the thing. If I do not, I'll use me. Been there, done that, got the card. If I do not continually focus my attention on God and put my faith, my trust, my reliance, and I literally lean on God for everything in life, if I decide to go my own way but for a moment, the average course for that is that I get farther and farther and farther away. 
Thankfully, the encouragement of the brethren. Thankfully, we've got access to printing copies of the Word that if we uh, take opportunity to pick them up and to study and examine and to pray that we can help ourselves to draw closer to God and therefore Him be able to reach to us and pull us in. But at the same time, the idea has to be known that typically people get sicker. Let me tell you how this works out. I, I may have miscounted. I'm going to call him two. Nine. Maybe it's nine. Ten. There's, there's ten men in here. Ten males. Maybe there was more. Sorry if I miscounted. Men in general won't go to the doctor. That's, that's just a, I mean, maybe it's a false accusation. How, how long you lay sick this last week and a half? You went to the doctor voluntarily when? Out of ten? And you told him too. Okay, see, I don't, I'm, not, I'm a prophet and a son of one. I know this stuff. Men typically don't go to the doctor. So here's what happens is, Lord willing, this won't be what happens, but I wake up in the morning and my throat's scratching. I said, man, I probably talked too loud and too long. and It's kind of rough. And by tomorrow afternoon, I'm like, this, mm, I must have twisted something. It's aching in my knees and my hands and, I wake up t uh, Tuesday morning. <laughs> Whew. Should have turned the fan on last night. And, you know, I got a fever. And so, I, you know, but I'll be all right. Let's, Wednesday morning I get up. I said, well, I'm going to have to call the doctor, I guess. My wife's already told me that 38 times. And I called the doctor, and he said, well, I'm sorry. I can't see till Friday at 2 o'clock. Man, I got to come. So I get in there Friday at 2 o'clock, and he runs a few tests, and he comes in to examine me. He said, i tell you right now what's going on. You've got pneumonia. Why didn't you come in here Monday? Because I didn't think it'd get this bad. Now think about that. I'm, I'm trying to be like Jesus and use the physical to illustrate the spiritual. That's everybody's life. That's my life. Yeah, I don't, now I'm not doing well. Yeah, I'm, yeah I've got this pet sin. I, you know, every now and then, I'm going to get sicker. I've not yet, any, net, not yet met anybody, whether we suppose it or not, who just quits church. So we was here last Sunday, ain't come back in six months. He wasn't here the last Sunday you thought he was. I've been there. I've been there myself. I had a time just a few years ago. I, I kept my pew warm. That's all. I went for months. People called, can you come preach for Sunday night? I ain't, I ain't coming. Now some of that was related to some other things, but some of it was related to this. My heart. In my heart, in my mind, being disabled by sin. And, and, and being, I guess, honest enough to say, well, you don't need to be doing this or that because you don't deserve to be him. It has a primary source. It has a paralyzing force. And it has that, we just illustrated, that persistent course unless something turns it. So where are we at? Number one, admit your weakness. Number two, this is important. Big time important. Look what happens to him. Jesus asked, verse six, will thou be made whole? And the impotent man should have just said yes. And in the roundabout way he does. But instead, he gives him the answer. He said, sir... I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But when I'm coming, another man steps in front of me or before me and I can't get in. What does that look like? Been there, done that. Got the card on this one. Got my picture on the front of this one. It looks like someone who stands back spiritually and says in an answer to Jesus or an answer to the Lord in judgment, basically, I would be faithful. 
I would be sincere. I would be good, but I can't get no help. Now, there's two sides of this coin. You've got to turn this thing back and forth and check it out. There's things on the front of a coin that you enjoy and you understand there's things on the back where you can learn a lot. Now, I'm talking about a physical coin. Pull out of your pocket. Look at that. You'll see things you've never seen. On the one side of the coin, this man's accusation, which is the way we'll present it for the most part, is, is, is not even a, is, is, his excuse is not a good one. God told or asked and commanded who to be faithful? Me. Now he asked you to be faithful and you to be faithful and you to be faithful and you to be faithful, but individually he did that. He would love to say collectively faithful congregation, yes. But that is all built on the individual. And I've been there. And I'll tell you what I did when I was there. This is it right here. I can't get anybody to help me. I can't get anybody to support me. I can't get anybody to set me on fire for the Lord. Ain't nobody going to do that. We need encouragers. We need people who are there to exhort us. That's part of the point of worship according to Hebrews 10, 25-ish. You better read 23 to 20 to 31 to get it anyway, but that's it. To exhort one another. The disciples did that daily. But in judgment, I can't stand before God and say, well, you know, God, if you'll remember, and he would. God, if you remember, I was going along strong there. I was going along strong until my grandma died. Or until, until my mother fell away. Or my daddy. Or I was going along strong until my children got involved in this and that. And it just, it, it just became nearby an embarrassment to go to the building because of the way they were acting. Everybody knew it, God. And nobody helped me. And the sad case, this is where we turn the coin over, sometimes that's true. But when it is true, the guilt doesn't fall on that person as much as it does fall on us. What have I done? I've been there, done that, and sat at the dinner table after services and come down and say to my wife or my children, I'm exposing them this garbage talk. I didn't see so-and-so there. No, they wasn't there last week either. I wonder where they've been. I don't know. Would you see anything on Facebook? You know, because face on vacation, we'd all know it. No, they ain't even been to Disney World. Well, I hope they ain't falling away. Mm, it'd be bad if they did. And we may even walk by one of the elders or another member, and when we get back that evening, if we go back and say, you know, I missed them this morning. Yeah, I did too. We kept an attendance record when I worshipped at Ironington. Uh, someone made it out and gave it to the, or laid it on the elders' table every afternoon. And we had, and what would happen is, is if you were absent, they'd put a little, little mark. And, and if you ever showed up, basically your name got took off the list. You got to start fresh. So if you get there one Sunday a quarter, you could actually do decent. <clears throat> Not the best system. There is a young lady that I saw in there had 142 marks. We're still praying for her. But I learned ain't nobody helping. That's sad. But his excuse. I have no man to help me. We need support. We appreciate support. But we may not always get it. And I've got to serve God and be faithful to Him and go toward heaven on my own if that's what I have to do. Because in judgment, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, we will give an answer for every man in himself of the things that we've done, whether they be good or bad. 
We need to encourage one another. So that's one excuse. The second excuse here is similar. He said, I have no man <laughs> when the water is troubled to put me in the pool. So maybe he thought Jesus might do such. I don't know. He said, but while I'm coming down, another step it down before me. So, you know, even if someone was, you know, kind of pulling and dragging, we could make it because there's always somebody gets in before me. This is it. How many times have I seen it happen and again, lived it, where I get frustrated and disappointed, which turns into my disability to serve God because I say, you know what, I, I just can't, I, I just don't, I can't be around that person. What's the saying? They are hypocrites in that church. Somebody's in my way. I would attend more faithfully, but man, I don't like that preacher they got. And that song leader, you did an excellent job, by the way, so not related. But that song leader, I mean, he just, the way he leads them songs is too slow, it's too fast, and Man, every time Randy gets, I'm not picking on you, but I thought of you. Every time he gets up, man, I wish he'd get caught up on his prayer before he gets the building because that 14 minutes is a little bit long for a prayer. And the grape juice, man, get, get a new bottle of Welch's because that stuff's been in the freezer for six years. So people complain and people come up. I come up with an excuse and say, well, I would serve God, but I ain't got no help. Or, or I, I, I ain't worried about help, but when I get there, I'm so discouraged. Doesn't work. Admit your weaknesses. Abandon your excuses. I'm being serious. What time am I supposed to stop? 11.30? Well, I'm supposed to go 11. I don't know. I come on this Georgia time, folks. I don't know y'all know about Alabama time. We got a better time. So. <coughs> Knock you in the loop, though. Number next, admit our weakness. Number two, abandon our excuses. Number three, and this is very important, accept Christ's demands. That's what he did. We're going to keep on reading there. He makes these excuses there. Verse 7, verse 8 picks up. And Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Now Jesus gives him three things to do, and I tried to emphasize. He first says, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. He gave him a spiritual pattern for action right there that every Christian can know. All through the blood and the power of Jesus, all made possible by the God of more, I'm given the ability, first of all, to rise out of the pit of sin. Once I do that, I've got to take up, not my bed, but my burden and my cross. And I've got to walk. There are no spots available for a standing still Christian. You ever notice that hidden in between the lines? Never once are we commanded to become a child of God's and tend to be stagnant in what we do. Never. It's always a reference to running the race, fighting the fight, walking the walk, doing the do's. It's always about committing ourselves to being acted towards something. It's all about doing what God says. And in this case for him, I read in there something very special that comes on in verse 8 and 9. He says, rise, take up thy bed, walk, and immediately this man was made whole. What did he do? He arose, took up his bed, and walked. He accepted all of Christ's demands. He accepted specifically without argument of what Jesus would do. Now, you've got to put yourself in this man's shoes. He's been a part of this malady, disability, whatever you would call it, for 38 years. However long, if for long, he's at least came to this pool today with a trust and reliance and confidence in the water. 
or maybe in the fictitious angel of the water to heal him. He sees no option, he sees no way, and he sees no help. This man walks up to him, has little if any conversation at all, walks up to him and says, One, do you want to be made whole? And his answer could be, are you kidding me? Do you not? He didn't say anything. He laid out a few excuses, which would make me assume that he is somehow not fully aware or trusting what's about to take place. But once Jesus said, do three things for me that seem impossible. Do three things for me that seem hard. Do three things for me that in the latest memory of your life you cannot do. He stands up immediately and he does them. Now we've got people and we've been people. There are people outside these walls I can tell you for sure who you go to them today, and hopefully we would, or any day other day, and hopefully in the past, and we go to them and, you know, we, you know, we get to know that we do the appropriate things to handle and to make this situation as best it can, but eventually we get down to taking a leather-bound copy or a digital phono copy, and we sit down and we try to study with them. And we say, okay, here's, you know, we want you to be saved. I know you want to be saved. Maybe you thought you were saved, but we want to show you the Bible pattern. Here's what Jesus wants. And they say, okay, yeah, boy, I, 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 that'd be good. I, that'd be, yeah. Ugh. You know, I, my grandma told me I didn't have to be baptized to be saved. And that, that ain't what you say. No, that's not what I'm saying. That's what God's saying, though. Well, I just don't know if I could go back on, on what I've always known. Well, talk to your grandmother about it. Well, she died. Well, that's unfortunate, but I bet you she'd get up and move too if she could. Whatever God says, I will do. That's the way to wake up every day. Sorry for the silly cup that's what must be done <coughs> is that difficult for some it is very difficult it's so far removed from whatever it is and it could be any other topic or you know portion of study but it's so much difficult but here's what takes trust maybe a stranger to him most certainly assume not someone he was definitely associated with. Jesus gives the man's and he doesn't. I'm not a fan of, of I, I can only use one for only several, but NBA basketball. I don't even watch it. I don't know about it. I don't know this. Every year they have some kind of a tournament type playoff thing and they play seven games if they need to. Is that right? That about right, and if you if you can win win three right quick to there two, you can. I mean, there's some math that goes in. You can imagine for a moment that game seven, and I don't care about this. Maybe you do. If the illustration fits something else, please apply. Imagine with me for a moment that you have just heard that that NBA tournament or whatever other you'd be a fan of is going to the seventh game. And as a matter of fact, they just announced that seventh game was going to be played right down here. Y'all got a Coliseum that's sizable? In the Coliseum. And tickets go on sale Monday morning at 6 o'clock. Now, that's Monday a week before. And you go in, and you're the biggest fan that's ever been, and your favorite team's playing, and, and all this such is going on. You go in, and you tell your boss that week, you know what, tickets are going on sale Monday I'm going to need to be off work for the rest of the week. I've got a good tent and a good sleeping bag, and I'm going down to the Coliseum. I'm going to be first in line. I'm going to get these tickets. And he said, man, whatever floats your boat, you got vacation. You do it. And you're laying right there. Your, your, your face is making an impression on the glass door. Okay? Follow me. This is silly, but watch it. 
and you're out there for seven days. It is 4.30 a.m. Tickets go on sale in an hour and a half. You're the first one in line. You're against the glass. It's been hard. It's been difficult, but you're there. And a good friend walks by, Randy. And he walks by and he says, uh, you, were the, you were him, Austin. Austin, what are you doing? So I'm waiting on these tickets. Man, you're crazy. How long you been? I've been here a week. Man, I thought you had a little bit of sense, but that's, that's ridiculous. You don't have to lay here because I got tickets at the house. You know, I knew a man. And Austin says, you got tickets. Man, I got tickets. Get out here. Let me help you get your stuff. I got tickets. We go into this game. The difference between him getting up and walking off of Randy's based on what? Whether or not he believes him. And that's all. Somebody says, I just don't know about that. I just don't know about God's requirement on this. Or, or, or maybe, they even, maybe they even claim, you know, I, I believe you've got to be baptized to be saved, but just, I mean, I'm probably, if I can get a few things straightened out, get in a better situation, do you believe it or not? He comes down to me, number one, admitting my weakness. I've got to say I'm a sinner. You cannot save a person who doesn't know they're lost. Number two, you've got to bring it down the road for them. And I've got to allow it to be the fact that I've got to look. I've got to, they have, and I had to. I've got to abandon my excuses. I want to go to heaven, and I don't care what tries to get in my way and who is willing to help and who is not. Then we've got to get to a place, as we just mentioned, where we've got to accept Christ's demands. If this book says it, mine is uh, black and yellow, a little over the years. If this book says it, I'm going to do it. And I may be surprised some days. I may be shocked other days. And I may have to say, man, how did you? But I have to. But until... I activate my will. I won't. I've got to accept them demands. But I've also got to activate my will. You know, Jesus gave us that prescription we oftentimes recite. And you can grab your song books for the song of invitation or whatever encouragement in a moment. But Jesus gave those, those demands specifically as to what we are going to do to be saved. Some here, depending on some here, depending on the application, depending on the stage of the individual. He you know, stated requirements about, of course, believing and trusting for those who didn't believe. He knew that he had some following him that did believe, but had not changed their lives, so he tells them about repentance. He knew that he had others who did believe and had changed their lives as far as repentance goes, but they're cowards as far as being Christian. They're candy-legged, and they won't even begin to even name the name of Christ, and he encouraged those people you got to confess my name in your life and with your mouth. And then he finally told those that he could review in their hearts. They've done these things. You, you're the only thing lacking. You need to be baptized for the remission of sin. Why is that? Because that's contact with my blood. Jesus gives those requirements. Every person who's ever activated the blood of Christ got to that point by activating their own will. So imagine this morning that you're disabled. Not physically, not financially, not emotionally, but the reality of it, without Jesus, we are all spiritually disabled. And those things I just drew out as quickly as I could reflect a pattern through which that we can advance one, mo one move at a time to the point of doing what Christ said.
This man laying on the ground, telling his friends, you know what, all I had to do was rise, take up my bed and walk. And his friends saying, well, you ain't done it. He said, well, I probably will. I might do. He did. I invite you this morning. We've got a song of encouragement right here. There's power in the blood. Is that what I remember? There's so much power in the blood. I, I can only imagine, and this is just fictitious for sure, but there was enough blood shed on that cross that day to not only potentially save those that were there that day, but to save those who were living and those who would live. And even in some sense, somehow, some way, to reach back and to save not those who were living, not those who would live, but those who have lived. Obedient to the law they were under. And so somehow, in this infinite amount of time, we've walked upon a world with supposedly 7 billion people. He shed enough blood that day to save this 7 billion and the other who knows how many came before. And he still knows there's blood in the storehouse to spare if he should continue to turn the time to more and to more generations to come. To children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, we would never know. His blood never ceases to wash because he's the God of more. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God's. We would encourage you to be obedient to his plan and be a part of his kingdom today through the washing of that blood and the addition that he would make to have you a part of his church, his kingdom. If you're here this morning, you're more like I am. I didn't go into enough detail, I'm sure, but there were several moments I tried to mention. I've been there, done that. I've been flat on my face. I've been flat on my back. I've been doubled on my knees. I've been kicked in the gut. I've had times where I doubted everything, but I want to have a day when I can doubt nothing. And when I bow my knee to God in judgment, my time will have sufficed. I want you to be there that day. <clears throat> to be among those who Paul would say, for those who also love his appearing. A day of reward or a day of regret. Today is a day of salvation. Your opportunity is open while we stand and sing.